In this podcast, we're taking a dive into the lives of dangerous women of Queensland. And we're not talking about serial killers here. We're talking about strong, fascinating women who forged their way through life with boldness, daring and courage and challenged the status quo to inspire change in Queensland. Women I would like to be more like myself. Dangerous Women is a podcast by the State Library of Queensland, hosted by myself, Holly's Wolf, produced by Snuggletooth Productions and supported by the Queensland Library Foundation's crowd-giving fundraising campaign. Join us as we tell the stories of some of the greatest Queensland women you've never heard of. People always say that there are three things you shouldn't discuss over a cup of tea with strangers. Sex, politics and religion. Well, in this episode of Dangerous Women, we're going to be tackling all three. So far in this series, we've met Indigenous cattle station manager Keelan Mailman, fashion designer and aerobatic pilot Ivy Hassard, and Lillian Cooper, the first female doctor in Queensland, who also happened to be a raging lesbian. Today we're putting on the kettle in Brisbane, in a leafy backwater of Milton, for a chat with the Reverend Dr Joe Inkpen, a prolific blogger, activist, and Australia's first transgendered priest. It's not about being born into the wrong body for me. It's about being born into a society which has very strange ideas about our bodies, you know, and how they think we should be. Joe and her wife of 35 years, the Reverend Penny Jones, live on campus at St Francis College. The college itself is beautiful, but incongruously looming over the sandstone arches and mossy roofs are the giant silver metal vats of the Milton 4X Brewery. There's a metaphor in here about being trans and Christian, I'm sure. And just to be clear, the church is definitely the brewery in this analogy. Hi! (laughs) This place is beautiful. We had no idea it was here. The Anglican College has a quaint English village vibe that matches Jo's accent nicely. Jo and her family immigrated from the UK 20 years ago. And Jo recently had her blog about transitioning and religion catalogued with the State Library of Queensland which is how this incredible woman first came to our attention. Before we've even walked in the door, Jo tells me it's Penny we should really be interviewing for this episode and not her. Penny doesn't entirely disagree. Why am I insufficiently dangerous? I reassure them both that I have every intention of putting Penny in the spotlight too, because from my research, she's quite a dangerous woman herself. When the Australian did their review of the documentary on Compass, they described me as her steadfast wife, and I just found this hysterical. And I actually think that, if anything, Joe would be more steadfast than I am. But anyway, we decided that we could be steadfast and dangerous. We sounded like a kind of cop show couple. Joe and Penny have been in the media a fair bit lately, including in a recent episode of Compass. Penny was one of the first female priests to be ordained in the Anglican Church in the UK and paved the way for women in the church to receive maternity leave. I don't know about steadfast, but she's certainly no wallflower. We go inside their house where an exuberant dog greets us. This is a dog. This is Bridget. This is Bridget. Hi, Bridget. Named after the Irish saint and goddess. Of course, I was thinking Bridget Bardot. Of course. <laughs> well, because my surname's Jones, when I say Bridget, they go, oh, of course, Bridget Jones. Uh, I go, yes, oh, that's right. <laughs> the kitchen table feels way too formal for this interview, so we set up the mics in the lounge. In some ways, Joe and I are worlds apart, 
she being an Anglican priest and me being an atheist. But when you're both part of the LGBTQ community, there's often a sense of family, even with people you've only just met. So I make myself at home, cross-legged on the floor, and ask Joe to start at the beginning. I grew up in a sleepy rural area in Lincolnshire in um, England, and it, and it was generally a happy one, but it was confining in, in a number of ways, and there was no language to speak about you know, gender and identity. Joe was assigned male at birth, but has always known that she's a woman. And some of her earliest memories are of realising that she didn't really understand where she fit in the world. My first education in being, you know, gendered, as it were, was at school in my first week, in the first day. And so I was in the playground and then there was a whistle blown. And we learned, before we learned the three R's, we learned gender identity and things because you got asked to go into one line or another line. And, you know, I remember being quite perplexed about this. And then we went inside and then we learned, you know, that there's boys' toys and girls' toys and that sort of thing. And so that was a, a little bit of a shock to me. And I think as I grew up, I knew I was different, but I couldn't really put, put words to that. As a child, dressing up was a way for her to express her true self. So when I was little and I used to go to visit my grandmother's house, I was able to dress up and there were glorious robes, you know, and these shoes that are far too big. And you'd sort of go down the staircase, you know, you just sort of flow down. You know how, how if you're dressed in a beautiful ball gown or something, you just kind of float down. That was gorgeous, really. As she got older, she continued to dress in women's clothes in private, but tried to keep it a secret until her wife Penny discovered some lingerie one day. Surprisingly, Penny didn't immediately assume Joe was cheating on her, as many people would. Instead, it helped to open up a dialogue between the two about Joe's relationship to gender. Now, it wasn't really surprising to me. I don't think I understood 30 years ago what that meant. I don't think she did totally either. But it didn't fundamentally change my relationship with her, like we were together as, as people who loved each other and were attracted to each other. And this just seemed to me an enrichment. And that continues to be the case. However, this all remained very private until just three years ago, when Joe officially came out, becoming Australia's first openly transgendered priest. For the first time in my life, I, I feel, you know, I'm comfortable in my own skin. As the first time ever. Because I went through life, I mean, it shows how sheltered I was. I went through life thinking that everybody else was uncomfortable in their own skin. And the problem is the Christian church has this thing called sin they talk about. There's that sort of thing that we're not really quite right in ourselves. So if you feel that in your body, well, maybe that's part of your sin, you know. And <laughs> But it isn't, of course. <laughs> this is a good point for Joe and I to unpack what it means to be a woman. I'm uncomfortably aware that there will possibly be a very small but vocal group of people waving their fists around in the air, declaring that Joe shouldn't be in Dangerous Women because trans women aren't women. This is particularly the argument of trans-exclusionary radical feminists, otherwise known as TERFs, who I personally feel give feminism a bad name. What does it mean to be a woman for you? I think it's a soul thing, actually. I think Simone de Beauvoir was right in that, in a way, a woman is, um, is not just born, but is made. And so it is about how we react, how we feel about life, how we respond to it, how we, how we understand our bodies, how we, how we relate to other bodies um, and families and, um, and life and so on. And so our chromosomes and our hormones and our whatever we've got, you know, sexual organs and so on, are in a sense secondary. And as Joe points out, 
The idea that there are set physical criteria that make someone a man or a woman is actually false. If you take, I don't know, 100 women or something, our bodies are really quite different. And some of us have got wombs, for instance. There's cisgender women who are born without wombs. There's small numbers on it might be born without a whole lot of different things. You know, our breasts are different and all a whole lot of other things. And it's a real distraction, isn't it? For those of you who aren't familiar with the term cisgendered, all it means is that you are not trans or gender diverse and that you identify as the gender you were assigned at birth. And you can be a feminine man and a masculine woman and so on. But a lot of it eventually comes down to, well, how do we want to identify? And as a historian, we can see that throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, that gender has been shaped in different ways. And so we're going through our own reconstruction, as it were, transformation of those things now. But enough about sex and gender. Let's get back to religion. These days, Joe teaches theology, particularly Christian history, and is a researcher and communicator on feminism, queer theory, and sexuality, all in relation to the Christian faith. Why, why have we confined our reading of the Bible just to, to one set of things? Well, we've done it because we use the Bible to justify our ends sort of thing, you know, so... I don't want to use the Bible to just justify my ends, but I do want to break them open so that we've got more possibilities, I suppose. We loved that quote of Joe so much that we also used it in episode three of this podcast, where Joe had a brief cameo explaining the queer religious significance of a stained glass window dedicated to Dr. Lillian Cooper. Joe also holds services at the chapel at St. Francis College and at St. John's Cathedral, and she tells me that one of the most joyous parts of coming out has been celebrating the Eucharist as both a trans person and as a priest. Because I thought when I came out that I might lose everything apart from Penny. I thought I would lose the church and the church has been important to me, not as an institution, but as like as a family. So to be able to do that and to be affirmed by colleagues and everything. I remember speaking at that point, a very short little address sermon, and I said, today my heart dances. When I was a teenager at an Anglican high school on the Gold Coast, actually, I sang with our girls' choir at St. John's, a beautiful old church near the Department of Transport in Brisbane CBD. To me, a closet queer, who was going out underage clubbing on the weekends and passing girls at the time, the building reeked of tradition and conservatism, and never in my wildest dreams did I ever think someone like Joe would be standing at the pulpit in a couple more decades. Right now, however, she's standing right in front of me wearing a bohemian purple lace dress. It's not the sort of thing I'd expected a priest to be wearing. So far, Joe looks more barefoot hippie than sombre prudish priest. Perhaps I need to check my Christian stereotypes a little. Ten minutes into our chat, Joe's neighbour Janice McRandall pops her head over the fence. Hi! Hello. Nice <laughs> to meet you. Erin and Holly. Holly, yeah. yeah. Good to meet you both. You too. Janice is a feminist theologian who's taught with Joe over the years and who works for Wesley Mission Queensland. It's quite surprising to find not one, not two, but three radical women of the church in this quiet little pocket of Milton. We invite Janice over so that I can ask her what she thinks about Joe. I've always known Joe to be uh, feisty and intelligent and clever and immensely loving and passionate about life. Hers is a presence that just fills every room with abundance and you know you're alive when you're with Josephine. Oh, and you happen to live next door to each other. Yes, it's strange, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Where else would have us? Yes. <laughs> Penny and Joe seem magnetically attracted to 
edgy Christians, as Joe terms their eclectically diverse bunch of friends. And I'm just going to name drop here for a moment because the couple even used to work alongside Gosford Anglican priest Rod Bauer, who's famous on Facebook for his brilliantly biting political billboards. I asked Janice if she'd describe Joe as a dangerous woman. Absolutely, like with pleasure too, and really enthusiastically. I think there's this element of danger that uh, provokes us as a society to think beyond ourselves and beyond our ways of living to to the possibility of new worlds. And I think in any general sense, I think of Josephine that way, but very specifically in the life of the church in Australia, it's really a kind of prophetic life that opens up a new world, a way of being Christian people in this country. I'm going to be honest. To my atheist ears, feminist theology sounds like a little bit of a contradiction. The church isn't exactly renowned for being big on women's rights. But as I listen to Janice, who is such a strong, smart, articulate woman, I start to gain respect for those feminists who work within the church. It's a very small community in Australia. There's only one theological college in the whole country that teaches a unit on feminist theology. That's in Melbourne. It's been a lonely, lonely journey, a dangerous journey, a a journey that leads to all sorts of exclusionary practices. And I'm at the point now where there's really only one or two colleges, I think, in Australia that would employ me despite my academic record um, because it's too dangerous and because Australia is in the Christian theological scene very, very conservative. So you've kind of painted yourself into a corner. Well, they have. They've painted. (laughs) It's a tight space to be in for all of the women sitting opposite me at the coffee table. We live on the edge knowing that there's not many options for you out there professionally. So there's always that level of, I'm going to say entrapment, (laughs) that you feel trapped in in certain spaces. How am I going to sell my labour under capitalism as a feminist theologian? It's a good question. But the question I really want to ask is why she wants to work as a feminist theologian at all. There's always that question, should I stay or should I go? And there's no easy or right answer for many women. The answers had to be for their own survival leave. And for some women, for their own survival stay. However that answer plays out, it it remains a difficult, ambivalent space. And, And sometimes the question, well, where else would I go anyway? Where would I go? I want to write, I want to think, I want to engage in this discourse. And I believe in critiquing and transforming the church from the margins, if that's where it has to be for me. I still think that's a really valid project for me to be involved in. When I speak to Penny later, she echoes this sentiment. Well, I think just by existing, uh, we throw up questions about the nature of God and what it is to be a, a Christian. And that's always going to be a good thing and we present something of um, a challenge to more conservative readings of scripture. Penny has been shaking up the church ever since she was one of the first women to be ordained back in 1994 in the UK. I was a person who who came initially to the college chaplain to ask about whether I could be confirmed saying, "Um, now I don't believe in the virgin birth And I don't believe in the bodily resurrection. And I certainly don't believe in creation in six days. Is it possible for such a person to be confirmed? Very fortunately for me, the the chaplain said, I don't think there's a problem with, with that. And I was enabled to ask those questions and to arrive at an understanding of those things that was both intellectually acceptable and spiritually life giving. So always, I think, 
asking questions is really important in faith. And asking the difficult questions is something she's never stopped doing. I would hope Joe and I were instrumental in in what has always been, you know, the task of Jesus, bringing good news, bringing healing and wholeness to everybody. And so if the church uh, can grow through this time and become a more inclusive, uh, affirming community, then that's good for everyone. While Penny puts the kettle on, I sit pondering our conversation. I can't help but wonder whether it's worth the compromise when the option to leave the church seems so much easier than trying to change it from within. But do I have the guts to say this to Joe? Penny's just brought me a cup of peppermint tea. Can you please pass me that little coaster? And this is a coaster with two sort of rainbowish little birds on it and it's it's very gay. It's very gay. <laughs> very camp. I love it. <laughs> um, this is the big question. Have you ever considered leaving the church? Yes, um, almost always. We had a bishop once and he said, not a week goes by without I wonder what I'm doing in the church and whether I should leave. And he said, but he said, not a week goes by without me realising why I stay. Where else are you going to go? Where is the space for people to think, to create, to be? to dream, to imagine, where are those spaces? So for me, you know, the, the church in that sense, maybe despite itself, has given me that over the time. And, and maybe despite itself knows that, that it needs prophetic voices, I suppose, you know, um, otherwise it dies. As a student activist, I used to grapple with this debate myself over revolution versus reform. The radical younger me was all about overthrowing the system. But as I've grown older and possibly more conservative, I can see the value of changing the system from within. And I do have a fear, I was thinking lately, of the mad woman in the attic and whether or not I'm going to become that if I'm not careful. I never want to be the mad woman in the attic. Get to the point where they're shoving me up into the attic, then that would be awful. But whilst I still feel that I'm making a difference, I do think you need another voice from the Christian community because it's just not true that these right-wing people represent Christianity. They don't. Jo tells me that she receives emails from trans and gender-diverse Christians on a daily basis and that one of the main things that keeps her going is her drive to support trans youth. She goes on to describe the attempts by some churches to suppress people's sexuality or gender identity as a form of abuse. I ask her whether transitioning has changed her faith. Yeah, I think it has. Trans people often get accused of, you know, being deceitful and all that sort of thing. So I think in one sense, I hid some of myself from, from God, that part of myself wasn't integrated. And now that's integrated. And I find that with gay Christians as well, that we actually know the Bible better than a lot of other people. And, and we've had to work so hard at our faith that it becomes real for us in a way. It's not just a surface thing and it's not just about a lot of rights or a lot of dogmas. It's about, it's something that is all of us and inside ourselves. I ask her to explain to me how she reconciles being trans with being Christian. There's always been this call to transcend, you know, to be transfigured and be transformed. And that's been my experience on a personal level, you know, that I had to let go of everything I was and risk losing everything, apart from possibly Penny, definitely Penny, and for the sake of something much greater. So my faith is enlarged because what I've gained is so much it's quite fascinating to watch Jo argue the case that her transitioning was in fact an act of faith. But once she lays it all out for me, it makes complete sense. 
one of the final things in my journey of transformation and transition was actually a spiritual thing because I realised that if I was to do what Jesus said, which is really the bottom line of religion, love God with all of yourself, it required that all of myself was to be offered to God, including this part of me. My dad, who was an ardent atheist, always used to say that Jesus was actually a pretty cool guy. He was just a shame about the Christians. What we know about Jesus is he went around healing people. So it's healing is really important. So if you can see that trans people, male, female, non-binary, are better and that they have more health by being who they are and who they say they are, then why on earth wouldn't you be working, you know, as hard as you can to enable them to be set free? Is somebody more loving? Are they you know, nearer to the love of God, if you like. Are they more loving towards other people? And they can only do that if they love themselves. And I find that, for me, being trans is the way um, I'm more loving towards myself. And therefore, if I am, then I'm more loving towards other people. That's the bottom line that you judge it by, not by someone's idea that they've inherited from somewhere or they've constructed in order to keep people in place. I admit that I'm pretty wary of Anglicans at the moment mostly due to recent statements from the Sydney Anglican Church in support of the Religious Freedoms Bill, which, if passed, will permit religious schools to discriminate against both LGBTQ teachers and also students. We pass the mic back to Janice to speak to this. You know, the enormous impact of the Sydney Anglican Church is ultra-conservative. It's so unlike Anglicanism in many parts of the world. And that both of those two key sort of politically right groups of Christianity loom large over the whole Christian scene in Australia. And the only other group people know of is the ACL, and they're even more to the right. So the Christian church in Australia really is very, very conservative than the other parts of the world where I've spent time involved in the church. Joe agrees. I mean, one of the most distressing things for me over the last 12 months has been the fact that the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, for instance, has brought in um, a policy on transgender people, which is exclusionary. Jo describes how painful it was for her to have to listen to the Christian rights response to the same-sex marriage debate, which happened just after she came out. The really difficult thing for me is all this nonsense that we've got from a lot of right-wing church people. As the postal survey showed that most Christians in this country, particularly Catholics, are perfectly in favour of marriage equality. But unfortunately, there's a powerful right-wing group who've got a lot of noise and a lot of money behind them. And unfortunately, some of our leaders, not all, some of our leaders kowtow to them and we don't get anywhere. When I asked Jo how the church reacted when she first came out, her response is mixed. She received a lot of support from her immediate superiors, but some individuals attempted to confront her face-to-face and there were also complaint letters sent to the church. This couple said to us, we have a problem, don't we now, because of you coming out? And I said, no, I don't have a problem with me and Penny doesn't have a problem and the church doesn't have a problem unless it makes it a problem. You might have a problem. In preparation for this episode, I've paid a visit to the John Oxley Collection at the State Library to review their LGBTQ collection. There's not a hell of a lot of trans content in here, unfortunately, but amongst a bunch of newsletters and photos of people at parties, there's a stack of letters written to the government in the early millennium demanding laws to protect transgendered people from discrimination. Things have definitely improved recently, but there's still some gaping holes in Queensland's legislation, particularly regarding people's registered gender on their birth certificates, which he can't currently change without having some form of surgery. Joe calls this a human rights violation. 
If you haven't got that certification, if it constantly reinforces the inner transphobia that you have to fight, that's the worst thing. But it also makes it difficult. You have to spend money, time to change those things. I'm trying to get my university degree certificates back in my proper name because if I apply for another job, for instance, I'd need them. But if, if they're another name, then there's all those questions that get opened up again. I ask her how it feels when she's misgendered or when someone calls her by her dead name which is how many trans people refer to the name they were given at birth that they no longer use. I guess I feel that I'm better placed than some people because I've got, you know, some support around me to be able to cope with that. But it makes me angry for other people who, for whom that, you know, just tipped them back into things. It's just about manners. That's what it used to be called. It's like, what do you want to be called? Call people what they want to be called. It's just, that's just common sense. Just get over it and change things. Back in the library, I trawl my way through a box of shirts harking back to the HIV crisis, a collection of badges, flyers for events, and folders and folders and folders of minutes from various queer organisations. Why do queers like to talk so much? Then there's my favourite, a big rusty old light that looks like it's come from a ship, but turns out to be a light from a prominent beat at Albert Park. But there's not much else possibly because homosexuality between two men was illegal in Queensland until 1991, which meant most activity was deeply underground. The first transgendered priest came out in the UK in 2000, 17 years before Joe was ready to do it here. But it's little wonder that in a political climate such as Queensland's, that Joe didn't come out until her 50s. I asked her if she thinks she would have come out earlier if religion hadn't played part in her life. Yes, I think I would. I thought I was, you know, relatively liberated and so on because I stand in a liberal tradition of faith. But I've realised how much I myself have been bound into all of that because of my job and because my wife was also a priest. So it was, if, if I left, then she would almost have to leave and then the whole thing would fall over. And I think I would have come out actually in my 40s. The first trans priest in England came out just as we were about to leave for Australia. And I remember reading it in this newspaper and it was like bolt of lightning went through me. This is possible. So if I'd stayed in England, I think it would have been possible. But of course, came to Australia and we had to rebuild our lives and in a more conservative background. So I think it would have been a struggle in different ways, but I got set back for sure. And that church was part of it. Of course, for Joe, religion and gender do not need to be at odds with each other. For Joe, her spirituality is directly connected to the importance of being true to herself. What's the point of the sin of self-sacrifice, which women are prone to, but to trans people as well, where you, you sacrifice yourself for the sake of being part of a family, part of a church, part of a nation, part of whatever, but at the cost of your soul. And that's the worst thing to, to destroy your soul, really. I've tried to insert a little bit of pop culture into all of our Dangerous Women episodes, and for this one, I've chosen the L word, the seminal LGBT TV show I love to hate. Joe bitterly disappoints me by saying she's never even heard of the show, so I give her a crash course summary of the last 15 years, ending with the most current season, Generation Q, which features a storyline that's heavily laced with religion. I'm secretly irritated by this and ask Joe why she thinks a queer TV series is so interested in talking about religion. Her answer really floors me. Well, I think it is to do with identity. 
I hope the queer community moves beyond a sort of protest about religion into a constructive engagement with it. And I think it will do because if it's going to be less white and less Western, it has to engage with people of different gender and sexualities who come from a whole variety of things where religion is intimately connected with their culture and their basic identities. I remember a gay person having a go at Equality Australia, actually, who've been making a bit of this shift of, of trying to engage people from these different cultures and backgrounds. And this person was saying, oh, but I can choose my religion, but I can't choose my sexuality or my gender. And the reality is that you can choose what kind of religion you have. But for some of us, our spiritual identity, our religious identity, is something that is as deep down as our gender and our sexuality. So we can't not choose it. We can choose what we do with it and how we name it, but we can't change it. Embarrassingly, I'd not thought about sexuality and religion in terms of race and culture quite like that before. And as a queer, it's always good to be reminded of my blinding white privilege. I know for a lot of faith people that we, we find that we've got to keep quiet within a faith community and pretend that we're not queer. But in the queer community, we also have to keep quiet about the other part of our identity. And we know that that's destructive. And people of faith then get caught in the middle. We're in sort of like no person's land, as it were. I've been enjoying talking with Jo so much. She has so many thoughts and opinions and ideas crammed into her head that at times I have trouble keeping her on track. You've just jumped three topics in one sentence. (laughs) That's what I do. That's what I do. It's called border crossing. I was thinking about this. I'm quietly worrying about how I'm going to edit her into neat, succinct bites that will work in a podcast. But she's distracted me, yet again, with this mention of border crossing. Perhaps a better word for it is intersectionality, drawing the links between the struggles of one group and another. When I look around Joe and Penny's house, I see plenty of evidence of this in their lives. Books about Indigenous Australian culture and environmentalism sit on their bookshelf along with texts on queer theory, feminism and refugee rights. Indigenous art hangs on most of the walls and there's colourful rainbow paraphernalia everywhere that to me makes the place feel far more new age than churchy. I feel much more at home here than I'd expected. These two women could easily be old friends from my queer student activism days. I bet they're also vegetarians. Are you a vegetarian? I am. Well, I'm a pescatarian, actually. Snap. Me too. One of the things I've really enjoyed about making this podcast is the connections that we've uncovered between the various dangerous women we've showcased. Jo Inkpen was born nearly a century after Episode 3's Dr Lillian Cooper, but there are many parallels between the two. They're both immigrants from the UK, both vegetarians, Both women have been trailblazers in their careers and both have been trailblazers with their relationships to sex and gender. And of course, she shares the name Josephine with Lillian's life partner Josephine Bedford, who is also a dangerous woman herself. And this is where Jo Aikpin's partner Penny comes back into the picture, another dangerous woman. The two first met at Theological College, as Jo tells me. I met Penny and she sort of represented the sort of the worst of sort of middle-class English women up, uptight and hoity-toity and everything else. So I actually wanted to leave because I thought, well, if this is what the women are like, what's, you know, what's the point of staying? But I did stay and we fell in love. In a particularly humorous twist, even Penny and Joe's marriage has become a retrospective political act, starting out as what appeared to outsiders to be a wedding between two members of the opposite sex 
which was A-OK with the church, but which now has been revealed to be a same-sex marriage between two women, which the Anglican church is not so down with. We've got this curious situation where you're not allowed to be married. I mean, if we were to meet now, we could not be married in the Anglican Church of Australia. And hello, we're about to celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary. So how does that work? Secondly, it's generally accepted on the whole that you cannot be in a relationship with another person of the same gender. Hello, we are in relationship, we are married. So we're a sort of an impossibility, really. And we, we ask a question to the church. If we've lasted 35 years with all these upheavals, including transition, we're a model of Christian marriage, if you like, in a quite a conventional way, in some way, except for the fact that we don't now fit the bill. Penny and Joe's marriage really highlights the nonsensical boundaries the church draws up around gender and sexuality. One of the trans priests in England, she was, in inverted commas, a gay man, and she was in a relationship with another man who she's still with. When she transitioned, she suddenly became respectable. When she was, in inverted commas, a gay man, you know, they were the outcasts, and we were models, you know, man and woman with some children, a nuclear model for Christian life. Uh, but it's gone the other way now. And she and her partner were married in a church in England, whereas now we can't. So... How does that work? That's really quite bizarre, isn't it? We're with the same people as well. It's not like we've, you know, gone off to somebody else. It's an interesting situation when an apparently heterosexual couple changes their gender dynamics like this. And I'm interested to hear how the couple now identify sexually. She will say she's a Joe-sexual. That's one thing she might say. Joe-sexual. What a romantic way to put it. I'm in a relationship with a trans man myself. But I already knew he was a man before we fell in love. And being queer myself, this was absolutely no revelation for me. I can imagine the experience is entirely different for those people who previously identified as straight. So I'm really keen to hear how this transition within their relationship has been for Penny. If we had been more, I suppose, heteronormatively conforming and I had been relying on Joe to be, I don't know, the person who dug the garden and clean the car, then maybe I would have found the whole thing more of a shock and more difficult to deal with. But because those kinds of gendered things were not foundational to our relationship, it didn't make a difference to me. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. I asked Penny to tell me what she's found the most challenging about her partner's transition. Well, Joe, Joe will laugh at this. I, I, I did rather pathetically say, so who's going to carry our bags? <laughs> I, I take offence in restaurants, as has occurred, when um, mysteriously I get called sir. And I did take affront the day that we visited a particular restaurant and they pulled out the chair for Josephine, but not for me, because as has been well established in our relationship, I am not a boy. <laughs> I'm most definitely a girl, thank you very much. Um, So I find that annoying. Funnily enough, the first time I kissed a trans boyfriend of mine in public, I had the complete opposite experience to Penny. As someone who'd previously only dated women, I was used to being on my guard for homophobia. So I remember standing in the street in a redneck country town and kissing him and being amazed that no one even did a double take. We were being read as a normal, run-of-the-mill straight couple, which no one had any issue with. So is that the only things you've found challenging, though, like um, restaurants? Is that... <laughs> Sounds funny, doesn't it? Well, it is, it, there is a transition that, that, that partners have to go through as well in 
the way that their spouse or partner is being perceived by others and how we're perceived together. So in the public space, you know, you go into a shop and they say, you know, good afternoon, ladies, and I'm kind of initially looking around for who who is this other person. I find it disconcerting when people are obviously trying to work this out. So are they sisters? Are they friends? No, they're holding hands. Are they lesbians? No, the vibe isn't quite right. So you can you can see people's cogs going going round as they try to read who we are. I suspect there's more than this that Penny's found challenging about the transition, but overwhelmingly, it's clear she thinks things are much better the way they are now. Joe, in in a sense, in male guise, was perhaps having to batten down some of her own creativity. So. Uh, being able to not do that and be set free into a more feminine space and a more create for her a more creative space just means I get more of lovely Joe. <laughs> I always felt when Joe tried to push Josephine aside that that was a bad thing, that then she was more angry or less in touch with her feelings or less in touch with me. So you didn't know any trans people then? No, none whatever. Thankfully, through conferences they've attended, they're both now connected to the trans community. Jo has founded Equal Voices Queensland, an LGBTQ Christians and Allies movement, and also sits on the national board. And she's even in an international network of trans priests. I didn't realise there were enough trans priests for a network but I'm getting distracted here. We haven't finished Penny and Joe's love story yet. What first attracted you to Joe? Oh, Joe was always giving voice to the voiceless. She's very passionate and intelligent and creative. And I think just that she did reach out to the women and we were an absolute minority. So to actually have her speak up and with us was wonderful. I asked Penny if her wife is a dangerous woman. Oh, she's very dangerous. She speaks truth to power and power doesn't like it, so she'll always be dangerous. However, the same description would also apply to Penny herself. Penny talks about the challenges she faced with the church back in the early 90s, starting with theological college. I found myself in this place where there were seven women and 70 men. And if you went to sing in chapel, you couldn't hear yourself at all. And if you made a point in class, uh, it would be ignored and then the guy sat opposite you would make the same point three minutes later and it would be hailed as the greatest thing since sliced bread. And you'd sit there and think, am I invisible? At Theological College, every picture on the wall was of a white male bishop. So there was no iconography that was supportive of my existence in that place. I asked her if she realised at the time how cutting edge she was being. I do have um, a memory of walking through the streets of Durham where I was then working in my dog collar and crossing over the entrance to a multi-storey car park and a car stopped dead and the driver jumped out and he said, are you one of them? And I'm thinking, this could go interestingly. You know, you're going to be one of these women who's being priested. Yes. And, And he was just shaking my hand and saying, congratulations, congratulations. You know, this is so wonderful. And that wasn't a church going person, but he stopped his car. And so I think that gave me a sense of of how cutting edge that was. Of course, the response to women in the church wasn't all positive, 
as Penny witnessed during her ordainment. The priest who was supporting the other male deacon was heard to say in a very loud stage whisper in the vestry before the service, it's absolutely disgusting that you should be being ordained alongside those cows. Penny goes on to tell a story about when she was being considered to be rector of a parish. Apparently the bishop had spoken to everyone and they told him they didn't want a woman, to which he'd said that was a bit of a shame. And they said, oh, why? And he said, oh, well, I was, I was thinking of asking Penny. And they said, oh, Penny, she's all right, we'll have her. No, we won't have a woman, but we'll have Penny. And obviously I wasn't perceived as dangerous. I wasn't a threat to them, they knew me. Perhaps it's similar to my partner's experience of being trans and living in a small country town. If pressed, most of the locals there would probably say they don't like trans people, but they all like my partner because they've got a personal relationship with him and he's very likeable. It's small-time activism, but it's powerful, and it reminds me of when LGBT activist Harvey Milk urged all the gays to come out because, I quote, once they realise that we are indeed everywhere, every myth, every lie, every innuendo will be destroyed once and for all. I put it to Penny and Joe that they are both incredibly dangerous women just by being who they are. I think for both of us it's actually that we are more or less accidentally dangerous. I don't think we set out to be dangerous, but just by um, being who we are in the circumstances that surrounded us at particular points in our lives, we have been viewed as dangerous. Jo goes on to describe herself in true COVID style as similar to a virus. Bear with me here. She doesn't mean this in a negative way. She describes herself as someone the church fears but can't get rid of, someone who purely by being herself has the power to infect others with a sense of freedom and a commitment to being true to herself. But as she says, what the church is overlooking is the power of people like her and Penny and Janice to heal the church and transform it into something better. You know, we, we can actually help to get rid of the viruses that they don't really see, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, abuse, all those sort of things. We can be part of that. But unfortunately, we're viewed as a virus. So that's that's really dangerous. And you can see that, by the way, you know, you're just not invited to speak. You know, dangerous people tend not to be given jobs or they aren't given titles and access to resources. It's important work these two women do. But I can imagine being ambassadors for the LGBTQ community can wear a little thin at times. I think it's very wearying. And I suppose uh, Joe and I perhaps felt, oh, well, we've done the sort of <laughs> pioneer thing. And I mean, that's ongoing because every time, you know, I, I, I took a place on a board or I went for the first time to a parish as the first female there. Uh, that was true even in as recently really as, as Toowoomba. And having to struggle for acceptance and belonging all the time. Uh, It's tiring. At this point, I realise I'm tired too. The sun is setting outside and a golden cocktail hour glow shines through the lounge room. I've been talking to Jo and Penny for over five hours and my legs are stiff as hell. Oops, did I just say hell in front of two priests? We start to pack up, but just before we turn the mic off, Jo starts to talk once again about the pains of coming out. You know, it's so awful, isn't it, when you're in a relationship with somebody or it's a big risk to expose yourself because you could get badly hurt. But unless you do that, you'll never grow in a relationship. And that's what I've had to discover. And that's been the hardest thing. 
to love myself, really. While Jo's talking about being trans and learning to love herself, this advice can apply to so many different situations. By listening to Jo's story of emotional and spiritual transformation into the woman she's always known herself to be, there's a reminder in here for all of us to bravely embrace ourselves. Back in my 20s, every time I went through a breakup, and there were plenty of them back then, friends would drag out that annoying quote about how you need to love yourself before you can truly love anyone else. But looking at the solid relationship between Joe and Penny, perhaps there's some truth to the cliche. I, I think that is the that is the holy grail, if you like, is that um, coming home to oneself. You know, we're always in danger of wandering off the off our path and or never coming to ourselves. That's the tragic thing. The trans gift is sort of like to call everybody to, and I think that's why we're disturbing to people sometimes because we call other people to be themselves so if we can be what we are then we challenge and threaten other people to be that and a lot of people really are scared to do that and and feel threatened because it, it's going to uncover a whole lot of other things but that's the exciting thing and that but that's what we're all called to be i give joe a moment to collect herself while i finish my cup of tea which has long ago gone cold as I get in the car and head north towards home and my sleeping child, I think about a queer friend whose father died recently, revealing to her right at the end that he identified as non-binary and apologising for his lifelong resentment of her courage in always being herself. Joe's final words bounce around in my head as I drive the two long dark hours home. I would never tell people you must come out, but I would say tend to your soul you know, and listen to your soul. And and I found some different ways of trying to keep from hearing this thing in my soul, in my heart, in my body. Listen to, to yourself and, and, and be open. And do not be afraid. Do not ever be afraid of who you are and of what you can become. The State Library of Queensland would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the many lands this series was recorded and produced on, including the nations of Yugara, Turrbal, Yugambeh, Jinnaburra, Bidjara, Yudinji, Irakanji, and the Godigal. This episode was recorded and produced by Erin McBean, sound designed by Patty Priest, and mixed by Simon Berkelman. <laughs>